The first reference to evil in the Bible is in the creation account in the Garden of Eden, where God forbids them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mind you, that's not the first reference to good. For good occurs all the way through chapter 1, where God looks at each part of creation and says it's good, and looks at the whole and says it's very good. So before we look at the subject of evil and the world's removal of evil, let's start off by pondering about good and what is good. God doesn't mean that the world is perfect and complete when he looks at it and says it's good, very good. Rather, he's saying that it fulfills his purpose. You see, he tells the man and woman, that they are to fill the earth and subdue it. By the fact that they've got to fill it shows that it's not finished, it's not complete. By the fact that they've got to subdue it shows that there's something in opposition, there's something that needs control, there's some degree of even hostility that they have to subdue it. Some hostility in the world. Well, similarly, in chapter 2, in the garden, the paradise, the Eden, there's a need for a gardener. I don't know about you and gardening, but I want a garden where you don't need a gardener, where it just is all there all the time, just as I want it, without any work. But no, the man is put in the garden to work the garden. For the garden didn't manage itself. It needs human care and supervision. Furthermore, the first time that we hear that something is not good is in the garden. For God looks at the man and says it's not good for man to be alone and so creates the helper for him. What's more, in the middle of the garden there is the tree that I've already referred to. The tree where the fruit is the knowledge of good and evil. So as we ponder the meaning of good, we mustn't assume that the world was created perfect and finished and complete and pure. Now, in these contexts, the word good means that God's judgment on his created work is that the world is as he intended it. The creation fulfills his pleasure and his purpose. It's, it's a slightly utilitarian view of good. God's intentions for the world have not yet been made clear to us in the opening chapters. His intentions for the salvation of mankind, his intentions for the coming of his son, his intentions for the end of the world, none of those things have really been made clear in the opening chapters. But it is good for the work that God is planning for it at that stage. Yet this is not to say that the word good always only has a utilitarian kind of meaning. For the Greek word that is most likely, most commonly translated good, uh, speaks of inherent value as well as beneficial effect. So what is the good? In the Bible, the basis of the good is God himself. God is good. Psalm 100 and verse 5, gives the reason for praising God and says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. 
The goodness of God is found in his character. He is loving. He is faithful. He, those words mean um, gracious and truthful or merciful and trustworthy. This is taken for granted today in our Western culture and in Christian cultures and by Bible believers today. But in the Bible, no, it wasn't assumed that a God would be like that. In fact, it marked out Yahweh as a God like no other God, for he is loving and faithful. Not only was he the one and only God who created all things out of nothing, but also his character was like no other God, displaying for us the very meaning of goodness. Micah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and Micah in the end of his book, his name, by the way, means what is Yahweh like, but right at the end of his book, chapter 7 and verses 18 following, we read, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you're sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What is Yahweh like? He is loving. He is faithful. And because he is loving and faithful, he's compassionate. He's merciful. He's like no other God is Yahweh. Now, that's not to say that God is defined in terms of good, as if he's kind of answerable to some higher power called good. There is no higher power. There is no higher morality than God. It's rather that good is defined in terms of God, rather than God being term defined in terms of good. See, God alone is good, says Jesus to the rich young ruler. If you want to know what good is, look at God. He alone is good. Faithfulness is good because God is faithful. Loving is good because God is loving. But because of his character of faithfulness, he is consistent. He is trustworthy. Because of his character of love, he is concerned for the welfare of others. He is compassionate. He is merciful. The great theologian Jim Packer put it this way, Good in scripture is not an abstract quality, nor is it a secular human ideal. Good means, first and foremost, what God is. Then, what he does creates, commands, and gives. And finally, what he approves in the lives of his creatures. But then, in the garden he has a tree which is described as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For there's something in creation that man, the creature made in his image, must never do. If he does it, God says in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, 
If he does it, he will die. For the man who eats of this tree is not fit to live. But what is this knowledge of both good and evil? The serpent who comes to the woman, he's not called evil. He's called crafty, but it's an interesting Hebrew word that sometimes means just prudent. It's not even necessarily therefore negative. It's just he's shrewd. He encourages and deceives the woman into eating of the fruit and she gives it to her husband. And both of them are immediately changed. Changed in the way the serpent said they would be. Now that's an interesting problem, isn't it? He tells them half truths, half lies, and it turns out to be true. Changed in the mind, for now they see in what they now know or rather determine, now they see something quite different in the world. For now, instead of seeing only God's goodness, now they start seeing good and evil. For they have taken to themselves God's prerogative of prescribing what is good and what is evil. Now they are passing judgment and deciding upon the morality of the world. Instead of subduing the serpent, which is humanity's responsibility from chapter one, made in God's image, instead of subduing the serpent as part of creation, Adam was led by the animal and by his helper into the rebellion against God, into determining and becoming the determiner of good and evil. And so he became the slave of evil. The servant, the servant of the serpent, and he became dominated by death. Come back to your Bibles, to that passage in Genesis 3, and you see there in verses 22 and 23, at the end of the chapter, the summary of it there. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Oh, the serpent said that would happen, and it did happen. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He was no longer fit for purpose. He was no longer fit to live. So what is evil? Within the Bible, it's our rebellion against God, seen in our determination to replace God in moral decision-making by ourselves. We'll hear more of that in this talk and in the later talk too. It's not very different from the idea of sin. But what about the world today? What does the word evil mean in not just the Bible, but in the world? So we turn to our dictionaries. Uh, dictionaries, remember, don't define what a word means. Dictionaries just describe how people commonly use the word. Because you, we must remember that words change their meaning over time. <laughs> it, it's strange how they do it, but 
it reflects the change in our thinking, but it also affects our thinking to change. So as words change their meaning, so we think differently. And as we think differently, so we change the meaning of words. Well, my computer's Oxford uh, English Dictionary says evil means, it's an adjective, profoundly immoral or wicked. And nouns much the same, profound immorality and wickedness, especially when regarded as a supernatural force. Uh, but the word also can be used of just harmful or tending to harm or undesirable. But the key meaning of evil within modern usage is that it is a profound wickedness and or immorality. It's not just wrong, but profoundly so. Discussions of evil therefore revolve around topics like Hitler and the Holocaust, Stalin and the Siberian salt mines or the genocides of the world or pedophilia or rape or torture, the kinds of profoundly wicked things, the kind of matters that we culturally, if not intuitively, reject as revolting and inexcusable. You, you need no reason to reject out of hand these things, for they clearly require retribution. However, I have a question about the world's meaning of evil as profoundly immoral and wicked. It's the degree of wickedness, how much is it seen as a continuum and how much is it seen as a quantum? I mean, is it a continuum where you move from uh, naughty to wrong to bad to wicked to evil? or? Is it a quantum? Some things are wrong, some things are wicked, some things are bad, some things are naughty, and <laughs> some things are evil. See, as a continuum, it's measuring some wickedness as mild and minor, and other wickedness as serious and significant, and other as as extreme, as profound as evil. But as a quantum, well, there are wicked things in the world, but there's also different things called evil things. So, adultery is wicked, but never evil. Whereas rape is evil, not just wicked. Or is there a range of activities that will fall into this discrete group that we have called the wicked, the, the, the evil rather, the, these are the evil things. Other things are just not that, just these are the evil things. Because as you read the world's literature on evil, I notice they really only want to talk about those extreme things as evil, the dreadful things that fall into a discrete group. And then they try to address the issues of evil as if it can be separated off from the issues of immorality or wickedness. Everybody agrees that these issues are the evil ones and there's something abnormal about the perpetrators of such evil acts. Uh, plain wickedness is tolerable, is acceptable, but this kind of evil, that's not tolerable, not acceptable. Uh, the beauty of thinking of evil as a separate category 
is that I can distance myself from it. I would never do those dastardly deeds, killing children or experimenting on humans or exterminating Jews. That's the activity of other people, of evil people, not normal people. Normal people don't do those kinds of things, not people like you and me. We would never do that. Yes, I may do the wicked things. I, I may be selfish. I may tell a lie here or there. But the profoundly wicked, the evil, no, I'm not like that. Yeah, I'm not like them. But the quantum theory runs into all manner of problems when you thunder it for a while. See, it wasn't just the Nazis or just the Marxists who actually tortured the peoples. No, in the 20th century, whole populations joined in the dreadful things that were done by their leadership. And there's no class of behaviour that all the world universally calls evil. India used to burn widows at the, at the funeral of their husbands. The Aztecs used to sacrifice their children in the morning to raise up the sun. Uh, some societies have used rape as a punishment for shame. And there are some signs around the world even today which say only the only good Jew is a dead Jew. And some people, of course, believed in cannibalism. <laughs> the very kinds of list of things that you would say are evil and totally unacceptable, well, not universally. Not all through history, not in every culture. And who gets to determine which cultural expressions are called evil? Is polygamy evil? Is patriarchy evil? Is hate speech evil? Where is the line drawn and who says it and who gave them authority to define what is or isn't in this little box called evil. Well, all this is the background that feeds into the world's removal of evil. So far, the world hasn't been given much ability to remove evil, has it? So far, the world hasn't been very good at removing evil, as can be seen by the persistence of evil across the world today. I was watching the SBS news the other day and three quarters of the way through, I said to Helen, I'm not sure I can watch anymore. It was just one disastrous society and nation after another, as wars and as famines, as, as people rude to people, object. it was just awful. It was just depressing to watch the way the world is. It's quite manifest that whatever it is that people put in the list of evil, you can still see practised in this world today. War crimes are still being committed. Rape is still part of our world. Domestic violence in killing people is consistently being reported in our society. And genocides and wars and racism. The United Nations is just not able to bring peace, to bring justice, to bring love, fairness, equity in our world. In all its years it's operated, 
it really has only failed. So, how can the world remove evil? <laughs> the answer is simply, really, it can't. But if you change the meaning of the word evil, maybe it could. <laughs> it's like getting the, getting the trains to run on time. That's fairly easy, really. All you've got to do is change the timetable. And then the run, then the trains run on time. So all you need to do to remove evil is to change the concept. Now, this is how atheists remove the evil. They deny the reality of wickedness. <laughs> if there's no wickedness, there's no profound wickedness, is there? You automatically have denied profound wickedness. It's not just the atheist like Nietzsche who saw that hanging on to Christian morality when God was dead was ridiculous. I remember in 1975 when I first became a university chaplain at New South Wales University, in order to find out what the university was like in those days, I went and enrolled in first year philosophy class. The lecturer wowed the class one day. I can't remember we got a wrap of applause, but they certainly, there was great excitement by it, because he declared that he knew how to get rid of sin. He could conquer sin, and he showed how to do it. He said, it's really simple. Get rid of God. <laughs> if there's no God, there's no God to sin against. We atheists, he said, we don't have any problem with sin. It doesn't exist, because God doesn't exist. This is the atheist's way of removing evil. Just deny it. Take, for example, Richard Dawkins. He wrote, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If the world is just a gigantic accident, accidents don't have meaning. If there's no meaning, no purpose, there's no morality either. And so you don't have to bother with issues like evil. You think, oh, well, that's just an extreme quote. Well, go to Professor Alex Rosenberg, who's a professor of philosophy at Duke University. He wrote a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. And he asks a series of questions and then gives answers to it. And then as the book unfolds, he explains his answers. But here are some of the questions and answers. What is the meaning of life? There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There's no moral difference between them. There's no moral difference, he says. Just <laughs> ponder it for a moment. There's no difference between good and bad. There's no difference between right and wrong. Well then, why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. But of course, what if it doesn't? Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible or something obligatory? And his answer? Anything goes. 
People are enamoured by atheists, but they don't understand what atheists actually wind up with. There is no evil. It doesn't exist. Tell that to the victims. Well, take Jesse Prince, who's the atheist professor of philosophy at the University of uh, New York now. He says, objective morality requires three things. One, a benevolent God. Two, human nature, an innate sense of moral values. And three, rational principles like logic or arithmetic. Because the problem is, Professor Prince doesn't believe in a benevolent God. He doesn't believe in an innate set of moral values of a, a human nature. I'm not sure whether he believes in rational principles or not. But he goes on to say, no amount of reasoning can engender a moral value because all values are, at bottom, emotional attitudes. The judgment that something is morally wrong, he writes, is an emotional response. That's awful. You see, so when I say pedophilia is wrong, is evil, all I'm really saying, according to him, is I don't like pedophilia. Makes me feel uncomfortable. If nothing is really wrong, then of course nothing is really evil, is it? Even pedophilia. Do you see this wonderful way of getting the run the trains on time? Just change the timetable. The wonderful way of getting rid of evil? Just say it doesn't exist. And there you're the problem solved. Now, instead of being moralistic, now we can set about solving today's problems. Mind you, who says it's a problem? Some years ago, I came up with the atheist's dream, which for everybody else, frankly, is a nightmare. It goes like this. Without God, there is no meaning. Without meaning, there's no morality. Without morality, there's no justice. Without justice, there is just unrestrained power. And so justice becomes social engineering and government becomes tyranny. As I said, <laughs> might be their dream, but for most of us, it's a nightmare. Do you want to ask then, why? Why remove evil? Why do they want to remove evil? Why are the philosophers and atheists so keen to remove the concept of evil? And they give three main reasons, really, commonly amongst their writings. Firstly, evil involves unwarranted metaphysical commitments. Lots of big words. They mean God. See, religious ideas like God or were still spirits and the devil. Those things, they, they, they don't want in their world. If there's something absolute called evil, well, there has to be some, as Professor Prince would say, benevolent God. Hey, God, that's unthinkable. We don't want him. Therefore, we don't want evil. A second reason is because they find evil is useless. Useless by which they mean lacking explanatory power. This 
concept of this thing called evil lacks explanatory power. There's a, an atheist British philosopher called Eve Garrard who's written on it. She says, the high level of popular participation in some of the most terrible massacres of the 20th century strongly suggest that we need an account of evil under which evil acts can be committed by agents who do not necessarily have evil characters. Without such an account, we'd have to accept that large, perhaps even very large, numbers of people are evil. And I'm assuming rather optimistically that that is implausible. <laughs> it appears that she's never heard of Adam and Eve. For her evil has to be in this discrete quantum. It can't be a continuum. It can't spread to the population that would support the Nazis or would support uh, the communists. And so she has to discover a secularist reasoning to defend the concept of evil, to define it in such a, a reasonable way as to make it a useful way of explaining why these evil people do these things. And so she comes up with one that I don't think anybody has actually found satisfactory other than herself. The third reason atheists have for removal of evil is because evil, the, the word, the concept, the label is harmful or dangerous. You see, if it doesn't explain anything, if it's just a label, it's a very dangerous label because it is so absolute. When used in moral or political or legal contexts, it brooks no discussion or reasoning. Thing is evil because it's evil, and if you can't see that it's evil, well then, what's that say about you? And so, it just declares actions or people as totally unacceptable. This person must be punished. This action must be stopped. No discussion. It just is wrong. Here, of course, is the postmodern cancel culture, isn't it? Label something as evil and you, well, then you can cancel it. Label somebody as evil, then you can cancel them. Anybody who doesn't agree with you, who tries to defend an evil person, is evil, and therefore their statue needs to come down. Evil is not then a moral term, but a power term. Giving people the power to cancel and destroy others. Now, it can be said that religious people have been using evil to cancel others for centuries. But the social justice warriors are using it now to cancel others. And so the atheists, many of them who are not postmoderns but the old Enlightenment people, they want to remove this label evil. They want to remove it from our language as a dangerous, harmful word. Which brings us to how to remove the concept. Well, the obvious way is by denial. And the way to do that is to change your worldview or to change your religion. An atheist worldview will get rid of evil for you. You will have all kinds of problems, of course, describing terrible events, but you won't be able to call them evil. Maybe what you'll do with the terrible events, especially ones that you cause, is use the power of censorship 
to eliminate what you don't like. I mean, that's what the Marxists, that's what the Nazis found very convenient to do. But rather than move to atheism, you could change religion. Change to a religion that doesn't have a concept of evil. You see, it's the Bible that gives us this binary view of good and evil. Other religions don't necessarily have it. They'll speak of the unpleasantness of life, of pain and suffering, but there's no need to remove evil as such. The yin and the yang of life go together. Karma will deal with problems. You didn't have to worry about it. Or you can move to the fantasy world of postmodernism on the New Age idealists. They find the goodness of or the, or the God within themselves rather than in anywhere else. They find it in all humanity. Rousseau, for example, who saw that all people were basically good, but institutions are what are corrupt, like the institution where he dumped his unwanted children to die. Or the silly best-selling book that's around at the moment by Rutger Bregman called Humankind, A Hopeful History. It's so captured the imagination of people that we are fundamentally good. It was recommended, I noticed, by The Lancet. Although I still can't understand why a medical journal will be recommending a history book, not about medicine. It's part of the message creep that we have in our society now. A second way of removing evil as a concept is by reclassification. You accept that there is a thing called evil, but you limit it only to include things you don't do, things you haven't done, or things that you haven't done yet anyway. And you call the people who do them psychopaths or sociopaths. Hitler was mad, wasn't he? Was he? Well, he did those evil things. So anyone who does evil things are mad. Is that the definition of madness now, to do these evil things? But there's an obvious problem. Other cultures and other times, people in desperate situations with different worldviews have not classified these very things as evil. They don't find it impossible to imagine doing them. I mean, I'm glad that people in our society certain find evil things as unthinkable. But it is understandable how we privileged people raised in a non-threatened wealth and freedom of a Western society which has deep roots in Christian morality find some things as unthinkable and impossible. But here we're back at the problem of religion and its necessity for the existence of evil. Here we're helped by the honesty of that atheist writer Tom Holland in his book Dominion who argues that though he's a lover of the ancient classical world of Greece and Rome, yet his morality, his ethical thinking and his culture, he really is a cross-centred Christian. But broadly speaking, our culture has just simply removed evil. In the old-fashioned way of censorship, we simply stopped using the word. By only keeping it for the most extreme forms of wrongdoing, 
we just don't have to talk about it anymore. It's only in those most extreme situations when people can think of no other word that will fit to express their emotions, as Professor Jesse would say, it's only when their moral outrage reaches such an extreme that they can find no other word than the old Bible word, evil, to describe what's happened. It, it's the deep disgust and intuitive fear that they will turn back to this Bible language of evil. Uh, one such moment, of course, in America was 9-11, when President George W. Bush declared, today, our nation saw evil. <laughs> other people in other nations didn't think it was evil, they were rejoicing. It was a comment, though, that that echoed across his nation. And as he continued to speak, he continued to use the word evil that hadn't been used for, for, for years and years. The power caught hold of the speechwriters. And so he kept using them. Indeed, shortly afterwards at the State of the Nation address, he spoke of an axis of evil, which led on to the 21st century wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and all the disasters that have followed on for the last two decades. I mean, it's not surprising that a Christian president in America could and would talk in the biblical language of evil. But sadly, he was not using the word in the same way as the Bible. But he was just labelling the expression of righteous power that the philosophers were afraid of. For it gave him the right to invade another country and fight any other war that he wanted to against evil, against terrorism, against the axis of evil. The word did become, therefore, very dangerous and very harmful. But President Bush failed to remove the axis of evil or the evil of terrorism. For all its power and high-flying rhetoric, America can't stop evil. The world can't remove evil. Humans are incapable of removing evil. Now that we've eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to discover how God removes evil means we have to turn back to our Bibles. Back to finding out what the Bible says is evil. Back to what the Bible judgment is about evil. About what calls evil evil. Why evil is evil. And most importantly, how God removes evil. In the world and in our lives. Yeah. But that's the next session, isn't it? Which we'll come to in a few moments.